All right, and uh, there we go. That's me clapping there. Oh, wait, hang on a second. Uh, I requested record permission from you. Cool, we got it. Yeah, it no, nothing's right, come so up. Second yet. clap. There we go. All right. <laughs> cool. So, are you recording yourself on the Zoom as well? Yeah. That's funny because I didn't give you permission, but never mind. <laughs> Nothing came up for me. I must have I must have changed my settings. That's all fine now. Good. Um, cool. So, uh, do you want to introduce yourself first? Uh, or just go, welcome to podcast. No, no, because I'll just edit that. I'll just drop it in from the other one. Okay, yeah. You're keeping this in, right? By the way, this is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no editing. There's no editing. This is so how good we are at the shit, you know, is that uh, we're so prepared and stuff like that. Welcome to Podcrastinators, episode three. I'm Darren Lees, professional businessman, stand-up comedian and comedy writer, and also owner of the Coe Marama Comedy Lounge Club. Congratulations on opening your comedy lounge up. And I'm Matt Danaher. I'm an amateur writer traveler podcaster and instagram influencer and professional union organizer and socialist tonight we are joined by um neil thornton uh let's see i'm neil thornton i am a uh, husband and dog owner and uh whiteboard eraser master and uh also known as a comedian and i guess for this purposes uh founder and teacher at uh, new zealand comedy school um, as well and also writer teacher blah 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 Hi boys, how are you doing? Good. What have you been up to? What have you been up to this week, Neil? Oh fuck me. Um, let's see. Uh, busier than I would really want to be. I wanna. I would love to be doing fuck all and nothing and lying around all day watching Netflix and getting stoned, even though I don't smoke pot. Um, but instead, I've been working for my husband's got a startup company. I've been working uh, for that and also trying to organize classes for the comedy school and cooking and walking dogs and doing laundry and uh, trying to get a little bit of writing done but and constantly checking warehouse over and over and over and over again to see if my click and collect order of Lego has come in yet and it finally has so I get to go pick that up tomorrow. So. Oh and which Lego set have you ordered? Uh, something expert builder it's a four by four that drives itself or something it's oh, phenomenally cool. overpriced but I need something to fucking do. Lego is Lego is phenomenally overpriced. Um, Darren, what have you been doing? I have been avoiding people doing the press up challenge on Facebook. <laughs> like, I have no fucking interest in doing it whatsoever. I, it would take me twenty five fucking days to do twenty five press ups. So never mind twenty five a day. So anyone who's doing it, I'm just avoiding commenting on their shit in case they nominate me. So that is one thing. And then I've just sort of become a professional alcoholic under lockdown as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm pursuing that career outlet. What's your, uh, Darren, what's your drink? Uh, it's um, single malt scotch. Single malt uh, scotch, okay. Yeah, it's definitely the drink of choice. Just worked out that me and my wife have drunk nearly six bottles since level four started. Well done. I like the fact you said me and my wife there. So which percentage has your wife drunk? Probably 75. There we go. <laughs> I'm she skeptical. has to live with you, dude. Um, so, yeah. I just got roasted drive anyone kid. to drink. Sorry, you asked me to a podcast, man. You just, um, I'm glad. Manhattans and uh, old fashions. So, oh, um, nice. I'm actually just drinking Coca-Cola right now. There you go. But I, oh, tonight is just water, just so I'm a little more articulate. I had a glass yeah. of wine that hit me where it hurt. So, that's yeah. my, uh, uh, to anybody who's listened to this on audio, Darren just basically um, uh, held up a basic bitch shooting <laughs> off ice. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> that's actually an embarrassing drink. I wasn't going to mention it. Have a top is that, and a halter top, dude. What's up? <laughs> is that one of your daughter's drinks? That's like, gee, I've run out of whiskey, so my 12 year old daughter. I tell oh, you, yeah. I'm criticizing a Smirnoff ice drinker with a bottle of a glass of Coke. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> happy, happy to. <laughs> Very secure in my um, choice of drinks here. Got to go and get a glass of whiskey now. <laughs> <laughs> right. What I am glad you said you're not, you didn't say you're doing this week is engaging in the latest viral challenge, which isn't, um, and I don't know if either of you have seen this, but it's not the press up one, which is scary and I have no intention of doing it. But it's actually um, apparently a guy called Liam, who's 19, to be fair to him. Um, so the age at which you do a lot of stupid things. Um, yeah. He did a TikTok video where he um, introduced the pee your pants challenge. 
um, and basically then peed himself. And um, that video was taken down off of TikTok, but reposted on Facebook. And thousands of it's been viewed 300,000 times and thousands of people have also posted videos of themselves peeing themselves. That's the latest viral challenge. Okay. We've officially reached the end of the internet, I think. <laughs> well, I think this is the danger of, you know, I'm, I'm a big supporter of the, of the lockdown and going, going hard, going fast, um, like we did. But I do worry that the kind of, this kind of thing is driving people to behavior like this. I'll say Neil, Neil just said about you're gonna harm, I know a lot of people who would actually pay quality money for those videos so <laughs> for completely different reasons from that's right actually they've um those people have missed out on an opportunity to be cam wars <laughs> there's 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 uh yeah there's actual whole Pornhub dedicated to that alone yeah so. yeah yeah no that's a really important point i think the death knell of civilization sure but you know we had the tide pods we've had everything ice buckets 25 push-ups i'd frankly rather be myself than do the 25 push-ups to darren myself so it's kind of like the older man's version of push-up challenge isn't it here we go <laughs> well i guess it's you just to combine them all at once <laughs> you know, do 25 push-ups be yourself and have somebody dump an ice bucket on your head <laughs> i probably would piss myself if i had to do 25 yeah, right. we aim to produce quality audio content okay. um, for the people of new zealand um, and part of that is asking you some questions, and that's why sure, you're here. Man. So um, I think Darren's going to start us off. I will indeed. I, I'm really keen to understand, Neil, right back in the day, how did you get into stand-up comedy? Well, that's, I don't know, it's a longer, I guess, path of that. Neil, the man, I, I grew up in a upstate New York town called Schenectady, which is really, really boring suburbia upper yeah. middle class, like very, very um, conformist in a lot of ways. Uh, and so my memory of childhood in a lot of ways is standing, lying down on the shag carpet in front of the stereo with giant headphones on, listening to, you know, a bunch of crap 80s music, but in between a lot, a lot of stand-up comedy of like everybody from, you know, Bill Cosby to Lily Tomlin to Eddie Murphy, Shelley Berman. Uh, you know, I had stacks and stacks of 33s and I don't know, it seemed like a magic trick to me, something that I would never be capable of. And then always circled around doing stand-up heard about friends of mine in college who were doing open mics and fantasized about it and then never could get up the nerve to do an open mic or show up to do comedy without trying and wasted a lot of years not doing stand-up but thinking about it even writing it collected a fuck ton of books on stand-up comedy uh without ever getting on stage. And finally at 39, I bit the bullet and took a class in New York City called American Comedy Institute with Steve Rosenfeld. And, um, and that was the, you know, that was just the, the, the bridge I needed, the getting over the fear of getting on stage. And that did really, not to toot my own horn and say did really well, but I felt like I did really, really well. And then had the great graduation performance where I felt incredibly successful. And yeah, the heroin was uh, injected and I started doing open mics in New York City for the next five, six years from there and just... Tried to make a tried to make a go of it, not necessarily as a living, but definitely as a avocation, as a pursuit. Tried to get really good at it. That's the start, at least. So, did you have anything linked to it previously that you've been doing? Oh, linked to it? I, oh, you mean oh, other stuff? I yeah. and I'm a teacher by trade, so I've been in front of classrooms for 20 years. Before that, I started when I was 16 teaching SAT classes. You all know what the SATs are? Or the test you take to get into college is called the SAT, but I was teaching classes in math and vocabulary, helping people get into college, and then taught English for many, many years. And my primary interest was, oh, number one, to make people laugh, and number two, to teach them something. So yeah. if I could get a laugh out of them and try to make people laugh for hour and a half classes, that was my goal. So I taught for years and years and years. So that's, I guess, where I got my chops initially is more or less where I got it. I, I thought I would be an actor and did not succeed at that um, in a variety of ways. I went to acting school for one year, Carnegie Mellon. Um, my only claim to fame there is Ethan Hawke and I got kicked out the same year. <laughs> he, because he was getting really, really famous for doing movies like Dead Poets Society and me because I was enjoying writing a lot and really enjoying being in college on a bunch of other different levels. And uh, uh, so I ended up going to creative writing. But yeah, that's the linked stuff is teaching, loving teaching, loving presenting, writing in a lot of ways. So I, the other aspect is um, 
I went to school for creative writing and ended up really loving teaching. Uh, I started really not being a big fan of writing short stories because all of my short stories were thinly disguised versions of me. Uh, and so I got really into nonfiction writing essays uh, and writing funny essays and humorous essays. And the biggest kick I would ever get would be reading those essays out in front of an audience. So I would, there'd be longer form storytelling or longer form, um, yeah, largely storytelling stuff and reading those out and getting that immediate feedback and getting that applause was the first indication that I would maybe be okay at stand-up, so. Teenagers are probably a tougher audience than uh, most of the ones you'd come across in a comedy club. Yes and no, depending. I mean, they're so bored during a day that if you do anything interesting, they're thrilled. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, when I first started teaching teenagers, I was barely not a teenager myself. I was 20 years old. They were 16. So we were not that big an age difference. And I was this loud mouth punk with a leather jacket and, uh, you know, often a hangover and foul name, <laughs> whatever. So I was very, very different from the teachers that were whipping them into shape during the day. So I was teaching classes for them on nights and weekends. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if they were necessarily a tougher audience. I had a lot of fun with them and probably to their detriment education, <laughs> but they had a good time. So, so um, you hit the New York comedy scene. Tell, yeah. us, tell us about the scene over there. Uh, it's, well, I mean, to its, you know, the plus side is you can be on stage every night, three times a night, if you want to be. You know, there's open mics that start at four o'clock in the afternoon. So you can get to do a, you're gonna do an open mic at four and then one at seven and another one at eleven. So there's tons and tons and tons of stage time, but it is wildly competitive. That's where everyone goes to do stand up. So those open mics, number one, you're sitting through twenty. 25 comedians who are terrible for the most part um you know and you're having to sit through a really really deadly open mic and on the one side and then the other side is really competitive and you're not going to get paid to do stand-up for a long time um especially you know you're not going to get into the big clubs like the comedy cellar or gotham for 10 years you know, I was four or five years into it when I moved to New Zealand. So really, really good for developing chops, really good for developing your skills, but also a little bit corrupt because most of the comedy clubs make their money off of comedians. So you have to buy two drinks in order to do the open mic and they keep track of the, they really keep track of the drinks you buy, or you have to pay $5 at the door in order to do the open mic. Um, or there's what you call bringer shows, which I thought, I think I've talked to you all before, about and a bringer show is in order to do comedy at a main stage show at eight o'clock you have to bring 15 of your friends so they mm. put together these shows of eight comics with a professional MC at Gotham or at Caroline's um, and so and you get a video of your performance and a lot of frankly boys a lot of the tapes I have online <laughs> of me looking like I'm killing it at a major comedy club are from bringer shows <laughs> but um yeah, so you're not getting paid and you're basically capitalizing on the goodwill of your friends who want to come out and have a fun night of comedy. Yeah, and so there's pros and cons to it. Definitely the pros of doing a bringer show is, A, you get a really nice tape and a really willing audience and boy, are they there to have fun. And the other point is sometimes in those bringer shows, you would get some really major name comics to come in and they would come in and sneak in in between acts at the bringer show to try out new material. So my history is, you know, I, I like to joke that Jim Gaffigan opened for me, Mike Birbiglia <laughs> opened for me, um, Dave Attell opened for me, Todd Berry opened for me, because these are people who would be working new material over the course of a week and they'd show up at Gotham and put themselves in the show, do 15, 20 minutes and then fuck off. So they never saw me perform, but <laughs> they were... <laughs> in the same, you know, in the same gig as me. How would you cope with a bringer show, Matt? You don't have 15 friends. <laughs> um, it would be struggle. I would bring cardboard cutouts. <laughs> there you go. Easy. With little tape recorders. But you do have that thing of like your first three years of comedy of all your friends really want to see you your first year or two. Um, you know, I could bring this massive crowd of boys and girls and everybody to one of my shows for maybe the first year until they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, we saw him. But it, oddly enough, the, you know, the $5 show or the free show, people didn't want to come to. But the <laughs> $25 and two plus two drinks plus a cab ride plus dressing up plus going out to dinner, you know, it would, it would end up being a $200 night. A lot of friends would want to come out to those because it just felt like a more, more of an event. If it was more 
more real, doesn't it? That's the thing. Yeah. Like, it's definitely if you're paying five dollars to go and see some comics, you don't think they're going to be very good. But if you're no, paying, they're not really. <laughs> 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 they really are. That's um, true. People have paid five dollars to see me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they got their money's uh, worth. And there, there's an assumption that I'm going to bring it too when I, you know, when I'm getting taped and I'm going to do my best material at that point. So, I, you know, I, I did a couple of those and enough of those and really thankful to my friends for showing up to those um but you know as a result i have some really good tapes that are online and that helped me a lot when i moved to new zealand so did you move to new zealand to make new friends that could come to show <laughs> exhausted no actually the the thought was actually that i would go kind of into seclusion and right i didn't know <laughs> what the comedy scene would be like in new zealand at all my Husband and I were living in New York City. We were looking to do something different for maybe six months. Um, he's a doctor, um, and we started looking for hospital jobs for him um, uh, here in New Zealand. And the first gig that he was almost going to get was at a hospital in Palmerston North. And uh, a lot of people told us when we landed that we dodged a, a little bit of a bullet there. Not, I've been to Palmy. I like Palmy, actually. It's quite lovely, and I, I have a lot of friends up there. Um, so I don't know what people were complaining about, but, um, I do. <laughs> we ended up, we ended up getting the, he ended up getting a job at Wellington hospital and I came along with him and was, you know, pleasantly surprised with the scene that exists here in New Zealand. I wouldn't say you dodged a bullet. I'd say you dodged a rocket launcher. There you go. <laughs> mm. Or a mattress burning. Um, <laughs> I didn't mind it looked pretty. I mean, I, I was just going to basically go into seclusion and write for, you know, write for six months or write a novel or something. I wasn't really necessarily planning on being as active in comedy as I was. And we weren't necessarily planning on staying either. We just uh, liked it here and started getting really comfortable and bought a dog and bought how, you know, got a house and... We're staying citizenship soon. I think in June we'll be able to be, we'll be eligible for the passport. So. Oh, cool. So you've been here five years. So my question then, Neil, is when you got to Wellington, how long before, you know, you started going cold turkey and needing that heroin again? Oh, well, no, it was almost immediate. I, uh, you know, pinged Jerome at Humorous Arts Trust, found out that there was a raw meat Monday. I think they put me up in, it was like a week or two, they put me up in the very first raw Monday at Fringe Bar that they did in the New Year. So it was like the second week, second or third week of January. Uh, and they warned me, they were like, oh, I don't know, nobody's back from vacation yet. Because um, we had no idea that everybody fucks off <laughs> in Christmas. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that particular Raw went very well for me. I look at the tape and I didn't do all that great. But um, yeah, so I started that. And then I think I got the open spot, the, the bucket spot the following week. And then Vaughn King started booking me in some touring gigs pretty soon after. So it wasn't very long before I was deep, knee deep in the scene. So. How, you know, how long did it take you to get really established? What do you mean? I, I don't know. It depends on what you mean by established. Cause... Well, for people to start booking gigs for you and stuff like that, because obviously you've turned up fresh out of New York. Nobody knows you here at all. And then all of a sudden you start getting, you know, booked gigs and stuff like that. Yeah, it's actually, I was more established my first six months than I am now, man, as far as a stand-up. Um, I was a, a very new meet as far as it was, people were concerned, and people were really impressed with the whole New York credentials. And I also had way more polished stuff out there on YouTube than probably comedians who were better than me, thanks to all those ringer shows. And so Vaughn, uh, Vaughn King, I don't know if you know him, but he ran uh, VK's, the comedy club here in Wellington. But he was running really, really killer gigs all around up from, you know, from Wanganui on down. Uh, and he started using me a lot. He, I opened for Ursula like three months after getting here. Um, and then from Vaughn, I got booked by uh, Taryn Mahambai for a couple of gigs and opened for Brendan Lovegrove. Uh, and then did some other touring stuff. And um, yeah, so in the first year, I did a lot, a lot, a lot of work um, and got up to the classic. And I think a year later, I was on TV. And then once the shine wore off of that cool guy from New York, to an extent, or I could say tall poppy kicked in or whatever, um, you know, settled into being a lot more, uh, not, not necessarily less famous, but a little more on an even keel of um, being more responsible for my own career than other people helping me out. So, uh, yeah, so weirdly enough, I jumped right into it knee deep. Um, 
and it was really cool because I had been paid for nothing in New York City. Um, had been, you know, had you know, I had never really been paid in New York except for like five dollars here or a drink ticket there. Um, and so getting here and earning a hundred bucks for a gig was like, fuck, this is paradise, man. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't care. It's in a soccer club in Miramar. Sign me <laughs> up, man. I'm just great. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. As I said, how quickly it took me to get in, I, way, way quicker than I probably deserve. Because I can say I'm a way better comic four years later, you know, four or five years later than I was five years ago. But there was a certain cachet of the New York guy yeah. uh, coming in. Yeah. So do you think you kind of saturated the mark? Because obviously it's a small market. The whole nah, not necessarily. I don't. I don't think I did anything wrong necessarily. I'm certainly booked as often as I need to be or as I want to be. I, there's a lot of things I can't do for a variety of reasons. I mean, they're traveling or you know obligated to husband stuff. So, I'm. Uh, yeah. There's. I'm. I'm not. I'm not blaming anyone else for settling a little bit. If I shook the trees a little bit more, I could tour just as much as I did the first year. What was the key differences between? the uh, American and New Zealand comedy scene? When I got here, when I got here, I was kind of frustrated with the lack of stage time that you could get. I mean, there was great stage time when you got it like the miramar sarka club or you know of the gas works wherever um you know these gigs were phenomenal in terms of audiences uh you know in, in terms of stage times just not necessarily great audiences but big and tough and i'm gonna i'm gonna get some thick skin i'm gonna learn some shit here which is what i look for in an audience in a lot of ways like all right give me give me something to fight but the number of times you can get on stage in a week was pretty light. Like people were talking, well, you can maybe get on Rami Monday one every, once every three months in Wellington um, or once every six months in Wellington. And there just wasn't, you know, there, there was Rami Monday, there was Medicine Wednesday, Vaughn was doing touring gigs, but you could easily fight hard and not have a gig for two weeks. And that's changed a fuck ton in the last five years. Um, uh, yeah, it's changed a lot. Like, you know, you guys in Auckland could do a gig every night if you wanted to now. And that's a massive change from what it was five years ago. Um, but moving over to New York, I found, you know, again, getting the probably the shine of New York. I was getting better audiences in Wellington, <laughs> uh, you know, better, bigger, uh, better, bigger audiences because of those you know as you were saying those five dollar shows nobody's going except for other comics they're deadly in a lot of cases they're basically open mics in the backs of bars they're really good for you but fuck they're depressing and um, <laughs> you know those bar shows um yeah so that's who i was performing to a lot so um and uh other things i thought i like that outside of the major cities whatever comedy scenes here are really scrappy diy put your own show on bring your own sound system show up to a soccer club somewhere or a bowling club somewhere set up in a corner set up a stage make comedy happen and i think that is any elaboration you know i could even talk about i could talk a little bit about audiences but i think audiences are the same everywhere really but yeah well i was gonna say i was gonna say when you were when you were doing that and you were trying different places because obviously there's comedy clubs and i don't know whether you did sports bars and things like that back home but you know when you go to soccer clubs and and rugby clubs and and places rsas and things yeah. like that's obviously different there are different audiences and did you ever think about targeting your material or did you just um focus on a kind of your one set? i didn't give the problem was i just didn't have much of a choice guys like i knew what worked for me which is a certain level of material it's cheeky it's not necessarily obscene but you know i do mention having a husband and i do mention the existence of gay sex um <laughs> you know, gay sex exists. And if I just mention my husband, some people immediately they're picturing butt fucking. And so suddenly they're, whatever's happening in their heads is obscene. So, you know, I, I have gotten the weird comments of like, you know, Oh, why'd you have to be so filthy? I'm like, I just mentioned that I was married to a dude. Like you made it all happen in your head, all the filthy part. Um, so, uh, but frankly, I didn't have enough material to cater. When I moved here, I had a good 25, 30 minutes of banging material and I didn't have much more. Like I didn't have anything I could. So I'm getting booked for a 20 minute show. I'm doing 80% of my material. I don't have a choice to cater that much. So I was talking to Elwood last week, Jeremy Elwood last week, and he was impressed with the fact that I came on stage and said, so my husband and I <laughs> in Winton, and he was impressed with that. I was like, I don't have any fucking choice. I don't have any other material to do. Um, so I 
didn't cater much. I think one of the things I learned in New Zealand almost immediately was I was, uh, when I first got here, I was very New York. And what I mean by New York is a little bit checked out, a little bit pretending I'm over it, not really <laughs> connecting to the audience, um, a little blasé, and just you know letting the words do the work rather than doing the emotional work. And the first gig I did, the major gig I did was Ursula Carlson and Vaughn King, who in an Irish bar in the hut uh, called the Foggy Bottom or some shit. Um, foggy Down. But, and I had to open for them and I watched them blast this room of 200 people with everything they had. And I look at my own tape from that gig and here I was just talking my material into a mic. Nervous as fuck, part of the major reason. I was scared shitless, but you know, I just realized, oh, I've got to bring it so much harder. I've got to commit to what I'm doing. I've got to bring a lot more emotion to what I'm doing, a lot more passion to what I'm doing, to the extent where, you know, I don't know if you've seen me in my last couple of years, I'm nearly frantic when I'm on stage, almost at the edge of losing my mind, just because I learned to be so much more committed. So I would say the only way I really catered my material is, A, of course, I wrote a fuck ton of jokes about New Zealand as soon as I got here um, and found a bunch of New Zealand specific material so I can get onto a stage and go, hey, New Zealand is this and the coffee is that and oh, isn't it funny you pronounce Z is Z? Like, I gotta <laughs> do that shit to get them to like me before I get into the fist fucking jokes. And so, <laughs> so I gotta write that material. But yeah, I think the major way I changed overall moving here was just getting so much more engaged and so much more behind what I'm doing and so much more committed to what I'm doing. Which, when I brought that back to the States, made me look like a night, it was a night and day transformation. It helped me, like when I bring it back to the States, everyone in the States is like, holy fuck, what is... <laughs> Um, audiences are responding so much better to me. That's interesting. So that's like a cultural difference, you'd say, between the audiences or your not, it's not audiences, it's just performers. Like anywhere you yeah. go, man, like you end up unconsciously aping the performers you're around. Yeah. So, you know, whatever open mic scene you're in, I don't know, you go visit a small town anywhere. You go to Milwaukee, you go to Palmy, you go to whatever. All the comedians begin to take on a similar tone to each other. And when I was coming up in comedy, there was a really ironic, detached tone mm. to stuff. And I had taken that on and hadn't really quite, hadn't yet learned to really connect hard to what it was I was doing. And um, which, you know, was a lesson I quickly learned. So it wasn't so much as audience. And also audiences in New York were far more willing to pay attention better comedy audiences. They knew the rhythms of setup and punchline. They were more actively, you know, they were a little more skilled in watching what they were watching. So they would give me the space and listen to the language as opposed to uh, in New Zealand where Kiwis think emotions are hilarious and uh, <laughs> they don't have them or they're not allowed to express them. Uh, teasing people uh, <laughs> me on a social media. Uh, but the point is like, you know, in New Zealand where, you know, they're responding as much to the emotion of what I'm doing as the content. Um, and if I'm in, you know, a soccer club in Porua, it was not necessarily, A, the room is set up funky and people are in the back corner and everyone wants to talk to their mate at the bar. Uh, and they're not necessarily skilled in listening to setup and punchline and they don't know the, the rhythms of stand-up yet because they're a relatively fresh audience. But fuck, they're glad you came. You got to give them a reason to pay attention. And um, uh, shouting is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> not, but not necessarily shouting but just being committed engaged entertaining up there doing a little dance like look at me i know you're at the bar and you want to talk to your mate and beer's only three dollars but you know <laughs> so look over um, here. have you ever found that being a gay comedian has ever worked against you it, yes and no i don't try not to act that way i'm sure it has i'm sure there are people who would book a gig in a small town and think eh, i don't know if neil's right i don't know if neil's gonna go over in this small town and they're missing out really those bookers because i can i can handle i've proven well enough that i can you know fly in winton and wanganui and palmy and you know and i've done enough small town gigs where that's fine so maybe that is the case that may be the case and i but i would not i would not ascribe that to anybody for sure i can't act that way like i can't i can't have it in my mind a i don't like playing the victim and b yeah. right i i'm not going to uh certainly not going to be in the closet and i'm not going to change my material and i'm not going to change whatever my mission is um i'll certainly try to maybe dial it back to an extent where you know so i could get more corporate work in the future that would be nice but has it hurt me i it's helped me as much as it's hurt me um 
probably helped me more than it's hurt me. I, a, I've got, in some cases, a built-in audience if I go for a pride show or if I'm going, you know, for an LGBT show or performing at, say, you know, when I did a gig at Stonewall in New York, when I went back to New York after being, you know, there were certain, something about being a gay comic. I had a gay audience come to see that. And I think there's a novelty to what I do that gets me, you know, to, frankly, a diversity card in some cases. So I've got audience who may or may not be more willing to see me. I think there is a uniqueness to what I do that makes me intriguing uh, to a lot of people. Uh, and I think also, yeah, I think that's basically it. So I don't, I don't, I don't see it as a detriment. And I certainly don't want to sit here and go, oh, poor me ever. No one's booking me. My mission should be, my mission should be, uh, my everyone's mission should be is like, whatever you look like, whatever your sexuality is, whatever your gender, ethnicity, or whatever it is, you should be so fucking good that they have no choice but to book you. Um, and I think, yeah. Um, and in New Zealand, for sure, the main people who book things, like the producers at the project and producers at Seven Days and the guy who produced uh, After Hours, who's, uh, and then Scott at the Classic, are just about quality of comedy, like period. So Scott will put a, Scott will book three gay performers in a night if those are the best people available that night. Not because he wants to make it a gay night, but because, hey, Neil and James Malcolm and James Mustapick and Eli Matheson are all free that night. He's not going to do the math of, ooh, that's too many gays, ever. <laughs> so. But it was interesting because I heard you in another interview say that you had some time where comedy clubs have gone, oh, we've already got one gay on the bill tonight, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 I, that, I felt that for sure. Um, certainly felt that for sure with the major comedy club in New York at one point where it was also, it was a bit of a pass off of like, you know, I'd done a bringer and often that was a bit of an audition for the club. I had done better on other nights for sure. If I had been undeniably good, they wouldn't have said that. But I got this real kind of strangely homophobic brush off from a guy. <laughs> um, yeah, at that point, it was like, oh, okay, you got a gay? Great. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't, and again, I have to ascribe it to not necessarily, you know, homophobic industry. And therefore, I'm not going to try, but, oh, I could have brought it harder that night. I could have been a better comedian then. Yeah, there's a, there's a well-known chain of um, comedy clubs in the UK whose name I won't mention in case this is libelous. <laughs> but um, they're well-known for their policy of um, one black comic. Yeah. Um, a night <laughs> and it's you know one black comic or one female comic or one um you know or you know one gay comic or you know two gay comics on a bill uh is too much for um you know even some you know for some audience members like ah, i think uh, we had it in wellington in an open mic where there were two gay comics and then like the ninth comic on at a raw meet monday his first three minutes was like everybody's gay now. They're all gay. (laughs) Like he just couldn't have fathomed that there would be like more than one gay person in the world. It's like, it's just this old dude who just, his mind was just cracked open and he couldn't handle it at all. And um, and that was his whole point of it. Like the first two minutes of his set is everyone's gay. They're all gay. And, uh, well, my, and Jules, by the way, uh, Jules Daniels, who is a, a Wellington comic, uh, uses that as a premise now because uh, they were there that night and to hear that bit. And now Jules uses that as a phenomenal premise. So I won't give away Jules's joke, but if you want to hear oh. that followed up brilliantly. <laughs> we will. Yeah. No, the thing that concerns me is having more than one ADHD comic on in a night. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> which is actually quite common. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of us Figure. about. Really? <laughs> But it's uh, it's when you want to make it part of your act, and then somebody else goes and does it, does a similar joke about, or, or does a joke about the same subject. And it's like, oh, yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> I think it's um, yeah. Just as a hint, by the way, you know, somebody else does a does a premise that's similar, and then you've got a whole set. You know, somebody talks about having ADHD, and you've got a whole set. Like uh, occasionally, I have a joke about chlamydia, and another comic in Wellington has a joke about chlamydia. The way to do it is to just make the audience believe that you overhearing that thing sparked this brand new idea that you're saying. Like it's in the moment of like, oh yeah, that guy talked about ADHD. I have ADHD too. And by the way, and like as if it's completely off the cuff and they inspired you to do this whole new riff. And then it seems like you're really listening and paying attention and that you're a fucking genius for talking about that's your a own really, That's a really good tip. I'm going to edit that out. So <laughs> nobody knows. Yeah. Thank you for that. 
<laughs> but it's, you know, it, if you've got a similar premise, it really is important to pay attention to other comics on a bill sometimes. Because if you come in and, and you may have to drop a joke or two because it's too similar to somebody else's. But if you, um, yeah, but if you use it as sort of an inspiration or a launching off point, like, oh, yeah, Bill talked about having ADHD. I do, too. Funny that we should all have ADHD as comics, isn't it? And then you can, um, and then you can go off on your own thing from there. How long had you been in New Zealand before you, the idea of the comedy school came around? Oh, gosh, I don't know. It's like four years, three, four years. Um, and it was largely because I just ended up mentoring a lot of people. Like, And people had started asking me for advice. I felt like I was giving good advice I wasn't giving and also I'd read a small library in comedy so actually I think really quickly I uh just to recall I think very quickly upon landing in New Zealand I was teaching writing creativity classes because I've always been teaching writing for years I've taught writing and creativity for 15-20 years uh so I started using some of the creative writing tools I had to teach the writing side of stand-up the Here's how to brainstorm, and I use that manual I have on my website, neilthornton.com, um, <laughs> or uh, nzcomedyschool.com. It's the same thing, but it's a writing manual I put together based on comedy books I'd read. So I was teaching the writing side of it, and then, I don't know, people started asking for it explicitly. I don't think I, I, I kind of got dragged into it reluctantly, and... So I decided to do the model, which I guess you all saw, which is the free class where I brain dump everything I think I know in two hours on anybody who wants to listen. And then out of that, taking, you know, 10 people who are interested in continuing to do the four full week, you know, and it's based loosely on what I did in New York, the American Comedy Institute class I did in New York. Um, there were some structural things I took from him, but I mean, that's how every comedy class works, period, end of sentence. Um, you know, that progression to a graduation. Uh, and then I did a lot of things that I wish he had done. Uh, to say. He was phenomenal, really good teacher, really helped me out a tremendous amount. And I give him credit where credit's due. But yeah, he had a three-week class and I do four. Um, and so yeah, structured it, had a good idea, did an experiment with 10 people. And then wasn't really sure if I was going to do it again until I got to the graduation. And the graduation was such an incredible celebration that um, I was so thrilled and so happy by the results of that graduation. I kept doing it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's where that came from. Yeah. What's the most rewarding thing in doing the comedy school? Is it for you? Probably watching the graduation like and being part of the graduation because it is such a celebration. And during the class itself, everyone is so scared and so nervous and so desperate to please me in a lot of ways. And so, and it's lovely to watch everyone's eagerness and enthusiasm. And I love that. And I get a tremendous amount of fire from, yeah, everyone's eagerness. Like, you know, both of you going through it, if I might admit, <laughs> went through the school. Well, both of you had a, just so much writing that you were doing and so much energy you brought to class and so much desire for it. And I get a tremendous amount out of that. Like all these people are just so excited to any entree into stand-up and people sharing ideas and bringing pages and pages of material and tons of great jokes and really cool ideas and original ideas. So I get a lot out of that. The ultimate, you know, I would say watching people, fight, you know, take that step onto that stage and that final thing. And even if it doesn't go as well as they would like, they're still so thrilled. The audience is still so thrilled, is so impressed. Um, it's always my favorite night to watch that all gel and come together. That's number one. And then also all the people who keep up with it is really rewarding. Like I, you know, some classes, 70%, some classes, 30% of people are still out there in the comedy scene. So I can go to an open mic and now and yep, one of mine, one of mine, one of mine, one of mine, you know. <laughs> So yeah, you're I, I go to an open mic and I say one of there's one of Neil's, one there's one of Neil's. There's one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's just Auckland, where I've only done the class three times, and Wellington have done it twelve, so um, or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a hugely rewarding part of it is that you know I don't you know the point of a class like this is there's a lot of opinions that you can't necessarily teach stand up, and I don't think that's true at all. I think that's like saying you can't teach singing, you can't teach acting you can't teach um dancing or swimming you know you, you every one of those anything in the world can use a coach but even if nobody listens to what i say what the comedy class did for me in new york was it 
was a bridge over that all that massive lava river of fear that I had to getting started. And if I can be that bridge for other people to just get over that fear and get them on stage means the world to me. And if that's all I do for somebody is get them on stage for the first time, then my job is done. And whether that's from a free class or whether that's from a paid class, that's what I, that's what I find really rewarding about it. Yeah, I mean, look, from a personal point of view, um, I think me and Matt owe you a massive debt of gratitude for that because <laughs> you may not, you know, you might be thinking otherwise now, but, you know, without that class, we wouldn't even be here tonight. We'd all be drinking Smirnoff Ice and eating chocolate, right? <laughs> I wouldn't be Watching drinking Netflix Smirnoff and, Ice. Yeah, I would yeah. not be drinking Smirnoff Ice. <laughs> no, I just want to make that clear. Darren, I, I, I took the piss out of you for Schmirnoff Ice, but um, uh, it's uh, I've done my share of Schmirnoff Ices at uh, a lot of gay bars over the years. I did um, when I was 20. Not if I'm trying to get laid, though. Uh, so <laughs> if I'm trying to get laid, it's beer, man, because I want to be a manly man at the bar. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be a bitch. You know, yeah, yeah. So if, I, yeah, if, I'm, yeah, if I'm not trying to get laid at Schmirnoff Ice, it's good. Uh, but, um, uh, but yeah, man, I, I appreciate that. I do. Like, Tim was part of your... Uh, uh, Tim was part of your instructions as well, if I remember. Mm, yeah, that's correct, yeah. He's phenomenal, and I'm really glad to have him as part of it, too. But yeah, as I said, that I imagine if you're anything like me, you've been fantasizing about it for years. You know, all I had to do with both of you, I didn't have to do anything, but like all I'm doing with both both of you or most of my students is just pulling that cork out uh, as outcome of all the ideas that people have been storing for years and all the shit they want to talk about on stage and all the shit they've been fantasizing about saying as a comedian ever since they you know every ever since they were 12 years old and first listened to eddie murphy come glug 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 comes out um <laughs> yeah. and all i gotta do is go okay shit all right no no not to that yes to that move that make yeah. that happen is stand the fuck still point the mic to your face um, and uh and it makes it happen so uh, yeah i like the the feedback and the appreciation that i help you know bridge that gap for some people yeah it's even just i think for some of us i'm speaking for myself but i know some of the others as well it's even just the structure of jokes and things yeah and actually as much as i'd watched a lot of stand-up comedy in the past it was actually understanding the kind of rule of threes and the setup punchline and everything like that i didn't really have the kind of academic understanding yeah i mean it's like watching a magic show and not really knowing how the card tricks work like you can appreciate it on one level you can oh i was fooled and if you're a comedy fan it's more fun to be fooled it's more fun to not know how it's working and how it's going as a fan, it's great because it, it is a magic trick in its own way. It's an act of misdirection. It's a palming the coin in one hand and exposing it in the other. But yeah, there are some certain, um, yeah, and I think people learn over time without instruction how joke format works, how setup punch works. Over time or naturally, they learn how to make people laugh in some way or another. And sometimes it's not with jokes and sometimes it, it is saying, hey, this is these are the building blocks. Here's how to structure them. If people aren't laughing, you're not doing that. So figure out how to do it. Um, yeah, there. it's an open secret. Like It's well worth also being able to point out to a student, hey, there's a setup. Good. Wonderful. There's your punchline. Wonderful. And then when somebody has just a sentence they think is funny, like, okay, just chop that in half. Make half of that the setup. Pause, pause, pause. The second half is the you know is the punchline. So yeah, yeah, the biggest value I give people besides the bridge to fear is just as an editor. Definitely, that's what I've I've realised looking at a lot of the sort of new acts, fellow new acts, um, on at various open mics, is the number of them that are there that are they're fine. But I just think to myself and other other former students of yours as well, we'll look at each other and be like, if they went to comedy school. <laughs> <laughs> I would basically you'll learn that man i mean it's just a, a you know it's a, it's a longer bridge to get to i mean there's a lot of shit i had to teach myself like um you know the editing and the um the editing of things and making eye contact with the audience like no one ever told me my first two years that i had to look at the audience uh I, right now behind darren i love that the picture you are showing is me with my fucking eyes closed because um, <laughs> the class all i yell at those at my students constantly is look at the fucking audience god damn it um <laughs> stop looking at the floor um and i i wish i could show you you know things from my first year in stand-up where all i'm doing is looking at the floor 
Um, <laughs> you know, for I'm just delivering 90% of my lines to the floor. So it's lessons I had to learn the hard way. And I actually remember it was a comic in New York who said, a friend of mine who I started with had just gotten passed at a comedy club, a kind of lower rent comedy club called Ha in New York City, which was a tough, tough, tough room. I mean, it was just brutal. But getting passed there was a great step to the next thing and a great learning ground. I was like, I, I, and I said, I, I think I'm a good writer. I'm doing good and I'm getting good laughs. He's like, yeah, but you haven't learned not to look at the floor yet. And I still resent him to this day for teaching, prob- teaching me probably the most valuable thing I learned <laughs> that, you know, still hate him a little bit for pointing that out to me. But, but yeah. And then, you know, the editing thing is just, I call it diamond mining. You know, everybody's, you know, everybody uncorks all this great font of material at me full of beautiful stuff and it's full of great diamonds. And it's just my job to go that one uh, right there. Look at that word. That's funny. Okay. How do we highlight that? And, you know, and then, uh, you know, cutting the, cutting the chaff away so that it shines just my job. And then more words can fill in and and go back to doing your own thing later. So how did you um, how did you set up with Tim? How did that come about, that partnership? Um, I was running some classes in Auckland. It was just killing me, uh, commuting back and forth. And I think it was going to lead to the end of my marriage as well, because uh, my husband was going to have to walk the dogs. And <laughs> he didn't like... Well, I mean, frankly, he didn't have the time. He works nights at the hospital. And, you know, so it was a pain in the ass every time I left. And I was leaving four weeks in a row. So it was, you know, kind of rough to do. Um, and I was just looking for people who wanted to uh, wanted to do it. And I approached a couple of people and some people said, uh, it's absolutely not for me. And a couple of other people approached me and asked if they could do it. And I, and I think they would be phenomenal instructors, just not necessarily for what I do. So I asked a lot of people and finally I just was, I think it was last comedy festival a year ago where I was backstage with um, Guy Montgomery and Melanie Bracewell. And I said, I'm desperate for somebody to do this for me up in Auckland and they said Tim Bats I was like perfect just I was like and when they said his name I was like fucking so perfect such a great uh because he's a a phenomenal comic b got the professionalism and the chops behind him has been paid to do comedy for a long 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 time also has a lot of skills that I don't have, the podcasting, the technical side, the radio side, has his own opinions about stuff, but is also a gentle, kind, really, really good human being. Um, and so, yeah, when Bracewell and Montgomery said, Tim, I was like, fuck, great. Um, and so we had a couple of conversations and he came down to Wellington and co-taught some stuff. With, then we co-taught a class together and I let, you know, where I did one and then another one where he did most of it and off and running and it's all his, you know, whatever he does in Auckland is all his now. Um, fuck if he's not a little bit better than me. <laughs> nah. In some ways, man, he's, uh, you know, got different yeah, <laughs> but he's, he's doing great and people love him. Um, yeah. And it's, not his end all and be all like during COVID he's not you know he's taking a step back on the comedy school and that's great and he'll be back at it when it's live again uh, but I love him to death and we've been he's been really great to work he must be all right he made Matt funny for six minutes <laughs> yeah only six that's long since worn off sadly um yeah never mind but one of the one of the things about what's been really interesting to watch and I've, I've been seeing this in other spheres as well has it been um, and it's, I do feel bad that I haven't been able to make any of them, but that's work for you. Uh, is is you rolling out more of these online remote classes via Zoom and so on? Yeah, which, yeah. Um, you know, it's been a the lockdown's been a great opportunity to force people to do stuff virtually. Yeah, in a way. I mean, I definitely I can't teach what I want to teach, which is the performance side. Like, what a huge part of the comedy school is getting people on stage. It's basically an open mic week after week after week with feedback. You get on stage, you try stuff, you find what works, you get on stage again, you get on stage and you get on stage at least four times, you know, once a week, if not twice a week or three times a week. And so people are getting on, you know, that stage time, I don't know how to duplicate that online at all. And so I feel a little bit hamstrung in what I can do online. Like people are you know, kind of beating down my door to do the comedy school online. I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. Something will be happening soon, something a little more comprehensive, but I'm not going to do, I'm not going to pass it off as equivalent to what happens live. Yeah, definitely. Because what happens live is people getting their mic and a mic in their face and finding out what works and doesn't work. So I can't do that. But yeah, it was just um, almost immediately after we knew we were going to go into lockdown, I was like, all right, I got to do something and I got to do something for the school. And I felt somewhat obligated to my students and obligated to me in a way to just feel like I'm doing 
doing something and have a productive thing. So I, yeah, I did a writing class and a editing class and, um, writing class and an editing class and another class. And then I realized that I'm so sick of talking and I'm so sick of the Neil show. So I started inviting other people to come in. So uh, Gary came in and did the class on how to bring a show to Edinburgh and I brought Eli in to teach sketch writing and Brendan Green to come in and teach how to structure an hour. And so I've been, you know, shaking the trees like crazy. That was phase two to get people to teach for me. Phase three was I really, there was a lot of people who probably have amazing opinions, but don't really want to make a fucking PowerPoint. So, um, <laughs> so I started doing the Q's and A, uh, the Q and A sessions and that was a way easier sell for, um, you know, for a more pro comic or a more busy person for me to say, you don't have to prepare anything. You're like what you guys are doing for me right now. Um, just get online and just talk. So I can pick their brain more specifically about kind of the shit I want to pick their brain about, like writing habits yeah, and yeah. creativity. And so that's been really good and productive. To be able to have an hour and a half of Jeremy Elwood, of Michelle Accor, of Gary Sansom, you, you would never get that time on the circuit with these guys, right? So to be able to have the insights, the stories, the background of these people has just been so awesome because you learn so much and you absolutely learn that none of them are the same and they don't yeah. do things the same. Um, so th those have been outstanding and I've really enjoyed them. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, there's a certain, like, I'm, I'm definitely modeling the interview format off of some of the podcasts I've listened to. But again, it's also keeping in mind, I think what this is me talking to myself for doing these more in the future, but keeping in mind who the audience is, the audience being newer comics who have something to gain from these folks and keeping the questions focused on that has a lot of fun. It's been good for me, man. It's been good. It's been validating to have people show up. And it also feels like I, you know, just in case people didn't know, I'm giving away most of the money I'm making on. So any Koha that comes in goes right back out again. Some of it went to buying a Lego kit, um, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, but a, a big chunk of the money is going back out to either, you know, the classic fund or the actual artists. And, you know, Michelle was talking about, and Elwood were talking about how many gigs they lost and how much money they lost just from COVID. And, you know, if I can give something back to them, that's makes me feel like I'm contributing in my, in the only way I really can. I'm not, you know, my husband's out there saving lives at the emergency room. I'm not going to be saving lives or shoveling dishes or you know feeding the homeless but i can do something um, yeah you know I, I okay here's my skill set <laughs> put you on zoom to make it happen what do you um what do you think is going to happen to new zealand comedy after the lockdown i i think it'll come back faster i think a people are going to be just desperate to get the fuck out of their house and gather in a group but also uh, the thought just occurred to me that everyone but comics are not going to have the ability to socialize. So they're going to want to sit somewhere and watch people. So I think it'll be fine. I think New York, I think New Zealand comedy for New Zealanders, given that in New Zealand, we kick the virus on its ass and we're going to sooner than any other country be able to go out of lockdown, at least as long as we're self-contained. Great. You know, a couple of months from now, we'll, you know, classic will be open. The fringe bar will be open. Um, and we'll all be out there on stage and, we're, and everyone's going to be so desperate for something that's not Netflix. It's going to be great, man. I am terribly worried that we're going to have 1,000 comics doing the same 10 fucking COVID jokes. <laughs> um, boy, I masturbated a lot during COVID, during quarantine. Like, yes, I know you did. And boy, good thing they legalized. Boy, I wish they'd legalized pot before quarantine. Yeah, good for you. Like, there's going to be a lot of the same fucking jokes, which is will iron itself out eventually. But... <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. I don't think, um, I think everyone's desperate to perform. I think audiences are desperate to hear it um, and commune in the way that comedy can provide. So there will be some limping along as the economy, you know. No, I think you're right. Um, it's good to hear a bit of optimism there. I mean, one of the things we have found, and I not for Darren, but for a lot of us, is the struggle of writing material during this period. It's like, it's been really, a lot of people have said this as well. It's been like quite, weird trying to write something that's not to do with covid or wanking yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely and that's fine i think you know i think there's number one i just loved like what, what we got out of the, uh, the q a sessions with all the comics is most of them are not writing most like i know when i listen to podcasts most of the pros that are out there they're like they're not trying to come up with a new hour hour show during this time they're going to ground and smoking pot and playing video games and doing lego like everyone else is or uh, having breakfast cocktails or whatever 
they're just, you know, they're doing the same thing as everybody else. So they're not productive. Um, it's cool to hear that. It's cool to, you know, to be able to take the pressure off, uh, to take the pressure off myself. And so the advice I'm giving to students is make sure you write every day, but make sure that you know that what you're writing is going to be garbage. Um, <laughs> it's going to be terrible. Um, so write every day, journal every day, keep a log of every fucking thing you're doing and everything you're thinking of and every COVID related thing. And whether it's good or not, you're just maintaining that creative energy. And there may be, maybe a few diamonds that come out of it, but even if they don't, you're just maintaining that creative habit. It's like, no, you can't go to the gym and lift the big heavy weights, but sure, you can pick up a few milk cartons and just, you're not staying in shape in the same way, but you're certainly not uh, atrophying. Yeah. So you keep that creative muscle going. That's my biggest advice. Just open up a notebook and write some garbage. I don't know if you knew my history here. I'll, I'll, I'll let you in on a secret. I think of, yeah, I, I may have talked about this before, but not to the audience of this podcast. I was uh, around 2005 forced out of New Orleans because of Katrina and ended up in an, uh, long story oh, wow. short, ended up in an apartment in Houston, kind of on my own, mostly on my own for about three months. Uh, um, September, October, November, December. It was like three or four months where I was, it felt a lot like this. It was on my own and, you know, I had aunts and uncles in Houston and I had some friends, but I spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time by myself. And also my entire life had been completely upended and I had no idea what my future was going to be. My house was wiped out. My, I didn't know if I was going to have a job. It's felt a lot like this sort of uncertain future in that. And I had that great similar thing that everyone's having right now, that great giddiness of possibility. Like after this could be anything. I could be anything else I want to be, but at the same time, that complete uncertainty of holy fuck, you know, the world's going to end, uh, you know, that, that feeling because New Orleans was completely devastated in its own way. You know, that great mix of emotions. And I went from these great giddy highs to complete and total breakdowns during that time. But but my most cherished possession from that time are the two notebooks I had during that time, which were just common notebooks. There were some free writes in there. There was some poetry, but there were shopping lists and there were phone numbers of guys I was trying to date. Um, <laughs> there were, you know, there was, um, you know, videos I had rented. There was a lot of self-indulgent fucking awful garbage there. There was fuck you letters to my ex who I broke up with during that time. There was, it's full of nothing that I've ever used in any way, but just a record of that time was so cool to have, man. Um, and it's a great to kind of look at that completely, you know, discombobulated person and, you know, have some nice empathy for him. So yeah, write whatever the fuck you want in a notebook. You'll be happy to have it a couple of years from now. Yeah, that's my biggest advice. Write shit down as much as you can. But Neil obviously said that you can either be the man at the bar at the bitch at the bar. No, um, I didn't okay. say that. I didn't say that. It's just, but you've <laughs> moved know, to Budweiser. Yeah. I'm yeah. stepping up to be both now, so I yeah. can be Budweiser. I'm okay with the Budweiser. I, I 100% approve of the Budweiser, but I'm not sure a lot of them, uh, Kiwis necessarily would take that no. as the manliest beer. That, and and no offense to the American. Oh, it's not Waikato like, oh, Draft or something like yeah, that. Yeah. No, that's right. Uh, Red Lion or whatever it is. I don't know if you've got anything else, Matt. I've got a couple of really quick quick fire questions which would be like fucking bang 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 but i'm very all. keen to know i'm very keen for neil just to say out loud um what he's planning next and um where people can find him online and f just um, remind us of the new zealand comedy school web address oh yeah okay like so that. nz comedy school.com or just <clears throat> google new zealand comedy school it's the only thing that shows up uh so nz comedy school or we've got a couple of facebook groups and facebook uh, you know, the Facebook community and the Facebook page ends at comedy school. I think I have an Instagram and a Twitter that I don't use at all. Um, <laughs> both of them exist and I've never used them. So, um, that's fine. You can follow me on, uh, mostly on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook, but, uh, more is where I am most of the time. But Neil D bear, Neil De bear, uh, or Neil Thornton is my Instagram handle. And you get to see pictures of my dog. I don't I have nothing about comedy up there. It's just me and pictures of my dogs. Cause I like my dogs and they're frankly more famous than I am uh, in Newtown. If this is still under lockdown, we're doing tons and tons of online stuff um, two or three times a week. Nothing is booked as of tonight, boys. So I'll try to get online by tomorrow and put some shit online for you all. Um, I've got some things in the pipeline, but 
yeah, I mean, classes while we're online are all Koha, so show up if you don't have any money and come learn some things. But I'm trying to write, trying to get some projects done, trying to take all the shit I spout during comedy school and put it in a short book format and give to students. That's one of my projects over this time. Trying to do online classes and uh, yeah, maybe other other fiction type writing type things. But also I got a Lego kit that came in from the warehouse. So that might be next for me. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Tonight was supposed to be the premiere of my comedy festival show called Circus of Shame. And I um, sometimes. really, well, I should really get about around to writing it because uh, <laughs> I uh, really think about um, how much hell the last six weeks would have been for me because I had a lot of work to do when lockdown happened. And so once the show was officially canceled, I was relieved. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I know exactly how you feel. Yeah, a lot of people are like, oh no, I lost gigs. Like, oh no, I didn't have to write an hour show for the comedy festival. It felt like, you know, when the school is swallowed by a chasm during an earthquake and you don't have to take the algebra test. It's, like, I don't care how many people died. I was off the hook, man. Can I fire you? I do care how people died. Right? <laughs> best comic you've ever shared the stage with i would probably say it's some of my compatriots like you know i would say the the best one to share the stage with was my buddy frank in new york frank liotti who um is just a fucking powerhouse comedian and i absolutely adored him um other mentors other people who you know there's the biggest name comics i could name those but i would probably say the best one who has made me laugh harder than anyone has ever made me laugh on stage is jessica kerson um, um, who is a New York comic who is ferociously funny, especially in person, just one of the best crowd workers, one of the best, um, uh, most frenetic, amazing comedians. Uh, so yeah, she was probably the funniest as far as making me laugh and had this beautiful ability in a comedy club to be on stage, work the audience like a mad person, have the audience's stitches, and then somehow be able to lob notes to the comics in the back, be able to look at the comics in the back and just throw one or two things off to them and have us cracking up as she was over their head, you know, over the audience's head, but then back to the audience. So she was great. But I mean, God, there were so many great ones. Uh, Justin Sayre is a, a, a great cabaret artist, but also a phenomenal comedian. Um, these are n names you wouldn't know, but yeah. You know, those are people I did shows with. Um, but yeah, other people who, you know, some of my favorites, you know, my, I think my third gig is when Mike Berbiglia yeah. <laughs> um, was on with me. I was like, I was just completely starstruck. Um, it just happened to be he was performing upstairs at the club and we were in this tiny little basement room, probably about the big, as big as this, this closet. Uh, and he just, it was packed downstairs. So he finished his gig upstairs and said, Hey, can I do five minutes? And we we're like, yes, absolutely. Mike <laughs> sure you can. Uh, so that, that kind of stuff happened all the time. But yeah, if you can, Jessica Curzon just taped a special, or if you can ever see any of her videos working, um, working the crowd at the comedy cellar, she is uh, probably the best on lesser known comic who is now up and coming now, but fuck she's, yeah. yeah, if I can give her a name, but yeah, amongst my friends, Frank, I just shared a four years of tromping to open mics with. He was another dude with a beard who's loud and angry. And you know, <laughs> like, I just love the fact that these two loud, angry gay dudes with beards and weight problems were the, 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 um, were the yeah. only two gay people. A lot of new, a lot of people knew <laughs> like conform, forming all new stereotypes. Yeah. Cool. Um, most outrageous thing you've done on stage. I, I did a gig at a nudist colony or not. Uh, there was, uh, um, it was called uh, uh, GNI Gay Naturist International. So there's an annual two week or one week gathering of uh, uh, gay dudes who get naked. Uh, and I got asked to do a gig there. So that was, and they said, you don't have to be naked, but it would be nice. And so I did. Um, so I did this, I did the show naked and uh, yeah, I tell a story about it on stage, but it was definitely, I think it was, <laughs> That was one of the times where I really felt, well, I am locked into this material like I've never been. Like, you know, when <laughs> had all this writing I'd done and all this performing I'd done, but there was this moment where I became so fixated on getting that material out in a way that was going to distract from everything below the neck. <laughs> I was like, nope, you're going to pay attention up here, motherfuckers. Come on, let's go. 
And, um, and so I, I really had to work hard on that one. Um, but yeah, that was probably the most outrageous gig I did was, uh, yeah. They say, that, when I was a kid, I did magic. So <laughs> <laughs> They say that um, if you're nervous on stage, you got stage fright, you should imagine your audience naked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and this one was, uh, fuck, I'm going to give away a, a bit of the story. True story. That night, they weren't. They were naked, but it was cold. So they were all wearing like jumpers and windbreakers with no pants on. So they all put towels down on the chairs for not obvious reasons, but ultimately obvious reasons. So you got to put a towel down on the chair. And then they were sitting there with like dumpers on and then tan legs. And um, my bit about it is like, it really looked like everyone had been like mushroom hunting all day because like right between their legs, everyone had caught one mushroom. Like, is it was just the weirdest sight to like look out and see these nice sweaters and jumpers and windbreakers and then just see the mushrooms. Uh, sort of but lovely guys, really fun. I would go back to that. I would actually go back to that nudist resort as a, as a patron because they were really lovely and really fun. And I had a really good time and I only could spend one night there and I would have stayed for the rest of the week. Really fun thing to do is, run around naked with a bunch of gay dudes. Um, so. <laughs> That's so cool, We're man. all over 60, by the way, just to let you know. <laughs> yes. All naturists are over 60. Yeah. So I was young and pretty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <No a lot. laughs> Have you ever thought of giving up stand-up? Yeah, here and there. Sure. Um, so I've been a teacher and I've been a writer or I've called myself a writer, but I, I you know, uh, didn't write and Acting didn't quite work. And I stand up is the only thing, the only thing that has gotten me to be as creative as I've wanted to be. Right. So you spent 10 years after graduate school not writing the novel, you know, take screenplay classes and not writing the fucking screenplay. You know, I spent a lot, a lot of time not writing. And stand up lit a fire under my ass in so many ways that if I quit stand up, I'd just quit being creative. I don't think I'm self motivated enough. And so stand up motivates me in that, oh, fuck, I've got a gig on Thursday. I better write something for that. Or I've got a comedy festival show in May. I've got to write something for that. So the desire to impress an audience and the desire to not look like a fool or an asshole makes me way more creative than I would be under any other circumstances. So I can't give up stand-up. I can't give up performing because it's the only thing that gets me to write. Uh, yeah. And teaching does too. But, you know, I would rather be, I wouldn't want to be primarily, if I were just teaching stand-up comedy and not performing, then I would quit because that's not, I need to keep my chops up as a comic too. Yeah. Like I primarily would rather be known as a comedian than a, than a stand-up comedy teacher. Uh, you know, despite the value I've added to your lives, I would rather be known as a comic. So. <laughs> Can you make comedy pay for a living? Uh, me? Yes. I'd have to get a divorce. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, nah, it's partially because I'm cushy and comfortable I, I, and it would force me into doing that. Uh, comedy itself, I probably could. And the reason I say I'd have to get a divorce is that um, A, to light a fire into my ass, but B, to make it more discomfort, uh, make it more uncomfortable. But also I work for my husband's startup. I teach, I do a bunch of other stuff. I've got other things going. I think we talked to Michelle in order to make a living as a standup, I would, especially staying in Wellington, I would have to, you know, be writing and freelance writing and producing a lot of content and, you know, scrambling for corporate gigs and touring and doing a lot of those things. And I think it certainly is a possibility to take a lot more hustle than I have <laughs> put into it at this. It might be easier in Auckland, but I'm also 49 and I don't quite have the energy of a, a lot of my friends who are able to write all day, put sketch shows together, you know, gig until 11 o'clock at night and then do it all again the next day I'm, it's certainly possible and it would be certainly be nice um, but i don't yeah i don't have to neil you've been fantastic oh thank you boys i hope uh, yeah it was a lot of fun to do so uh you boys take care i will talk to you, you. sometime soon see you online you neil Fulton, thank you you're very welcome man thanks thank you great to have you here thanks for listening just um flicking a little note on the end to say that our music um, was all done by Kid Hideous and if you want to listen to more by him you can go to kidhideous.bandcamp.com Thanks <laughs>